Well, welcome to RUF tonight. I know uh, a lot of you have hit the, hit the grind of the semester this week, if I understand correctly. A lot of tests and a lot of other stuff going on. So thank you for being here, RUF. If, if I haven't met you yet, uh, I'm Elliot Everett. And if I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Uh, just come say hey to me afterwards. Tell me where you're from, what's going on. Um, for others of you, um, I'd love to get together with you, have coffee, have a lunch, whatever. If you ever want to get together, just let me know. Be my friend on Facebook. Make me feel good about myself. It's awesome. Uh, tonight, we are going to be in John chapter 4. A uh, pretty long passage, and I think I'm going to skip over a little section that's printed in your handout if you're reading along with me there. Um, just a lot here, uh, so I want to cover as best I can. Am I on? For better or for worse? All right, let's read together uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea, departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in, a, become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband. And come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, 
I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left the water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Skip down to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to your word now, and we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us your spirit, that you would give us the words of grace and truth, and that you would write them indelibly upon our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, his famous poem, maybe many of you have read it in junior high, or I can't remember when I read it, but The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, it's about a sailor, uh, not about the baseball team. Um, and there's a line, there's a couple of lines in that poem that go like this. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any a drop to drink. It's kind of reflecting on the, the, the great irony of being a sailor at sea, that you're surrounded at every turn by oceans of water. Even in the air uh, is filled with it, but you can't drink any of it. Actually, to drink it would to be drink, to drink poison. So it's the grand tragedy of, of being a, tra- a sailor. It's a very great tragedy to be lost at sea. And the very last thing you would expect a sailor to suffer from is dehydration. That's exactly what would happen to sailors lost at sea. Surrounded by oceans of that which would give them life, but they could not drink it. Tonight, in this passage, as we continue to kind of answer this question, who is I am, we look and we see that our good shepherd is leading us. He's leading us away from the false wells which we so often find ourselves lapping up, and he leads us to the living water. So I want to see three things here about the living water. Uh, And the first one is, that the living water knows no boundaries. Okay, y'all have got to understand that the context of this passage would have blown the, the first readers away. It just would have stuck out to them, one, that Jesus was in Samaria, two, that he intentionally, intentionally reaches out to this woman, a Samaritan. Um, and we're clued into the fact of how important that context is here. When the disciples return, it's almost like an awkward scene. The disciples get back and they all just kind of stop. And it's kind of this image that they're all just staring at Jesus because he's sitting here talking to this woman. What's going on? Well, think back with me. Last week we looked in John chapter 3 and Jesus with Nicodemus. It's kind of very interesting that John puts these two accounts right next to each other. Because if you think back with me last week, 
Not only was Nicodemus a Jew, but he was a leader of the Jews. Not only was he a ruler of the Jews, but he was also a great teacher of Israel. Nicodemus was the guy that had it all together. He was the guy that was esteemed, approved of. Um, People praised him and what he had done with his life. So on the whole, Nicodemus was one that had life pretty well figured out. And he actually comes seeking Jesus. But when we get to the end of the account, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, we're left with the only conclusion that Nicodemus is still lost. He comes seeking Jesus, yet he leaves even more confused than he was at the beginning. Then we get to chapter 4. And we have Jesus talking to a woman. Not just a woman, which would have been strange enough. There's actually a rule, uh, rabbinic law, that you did not address women in public. Not even your own wife. Men were not supposed to talk to women in public. For the shame that it could portray or lead to or whatever. So not only is he talking to a woman, but he's talking to a woman of Samaria, a Samaritan woman. Jews despised Samaritans. Think of an image maybe in 1950 Selma, Alabama, and you have a white man walking into a town square, and all there is is a black man minding his own business, and the white man reaches out to him for help. Tension would have been palpable for those standing around watching the interaction. See, there's a little bit of history, I don't want to bore you with it, but um, you know, Saul was the king of Israel, then David was the king of Israel, and then Solomon was the king of Israel. After Solomon, the kingdom actually split in two. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. Jerusalem was in Judah. It's where uh, the, by the, the Jews of Jesus' day were all from Judah. In the northern kingdom, the northern kingdom went into exile pretty early for the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did was they took the cream of the crop of Israel and took them to Assyria. And then they put Assyrians in their place to intermarry and kind of mix the pool of people. So that we lose their identity and be kind of assimilated into the Assyrian identity. So there's a very racial aspect going on here. So not only, and and then beside the racial dynamic, you've got a worship dynamic. Jews, the temple was built in Jerusalem, uh, but the Samaritans thought, hey, we need a place to worship too. So they build their own temple and they're looking forward to their own Messiah. Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. If you look at... um, you look at Jesus' request to get a drink, and you look at one of the many parentheses here in verse, um, in verse 9. Uh, the ESV says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The literal translation is, Jews do not share vessels with Samaritans. Because to drink with or share a cup or whatever with Samaritan would make you spiritually, ritually unclean. Everything about The context of what Jesus is doing here is screaming at us that this is weird. Okay? On top of all that, it's high noon. Okay? Sixth hour would have been about 12 o'clock. Sun at its highest peak. And this woman is coming to the well alone. Okay, it wasn't odd to come to the well. You had to go to the well daily. You had to have water enough to carry out the business of the day. But women, when they went to the well, one, they went in a group. Two, they went in the cool of the day, in the morning or in the evening. This woman is alone, and she's coming at the middle of the day when hopefully no one else would be around. 
And we see when Jesus starts probing her personal history what the reason is. She's the town tramp. She's the reject. She's the outcast. She wants to go when no one else is around. She walks to the well, and Jesus, as custom would have been, he would have gotten up and walked into the shade and waited till she left. He leans over to her and says, get me a drink, please. So you, try, you contrast the two accounts here, you get this. The guy who is esteemed, upright, had it all together, seeks Jesus but leaves in darkness. The outcast, the reject, comes. She doesn't care about Jesus. Jesus pursues her. She evades his every question, and she leaves radically transformed. She leaves a worshiper and an evangelizer, the first woman evangelist of the Bible, a Samaritan whore. And Jesus sought her out. So I'm just, don't want to go overboard in stressing this, but Jesus intentionally broke every single social code that there was. Gender, racial, socially, um, ritually, morality, all of it. He speaks into her life and he changes her forever. And what we kind of come away from that is this is the type of person who gets living water. This is the type of person that Jesus brings living water. Here's a question. How do you know when you have found living water? Well, what this passage is telling us is one thing here. You know that you found living water when it begins to tear down the walls of your life whether it's the walls that you have put up so that nobody else can get in, or whether it's the walls that you've put up because you don't want anybody else to know. The walls that make people think that you're untouchable. Jesus does the exact opposite. He is everything but untouchable. Not only does he touch people, but he loves them. He cares for them. You see how gentle he is with her. She keeps evading what he's getting at, and he just keeps going after her. And see, the thing is, is that most of us, the college culture, our culture in general, we are defined by the walls that we put up. Why? Because we are defined by how well we measure up. Your every facet of your life to this point and into the future is defined by what bar you have or have not met. Who you know how you look, how well you're doing, what your resume looks like. And what happens is in the undying pressure of your life, your every hour, the undying pressure of measuring up, what it actually ends up doing, it begins defining how you relate to God. And the way you relate to God is, have I met the bar today? And when that starts defining the way that you relate to God, it necessarily starts defining how you relate to other people. And what I mean by that is your every encounter with other people is, do they measure up? Do they measure up? Do do other people, especially people that are different from you, do they see you as untouchable? Jesus is the only man that had any right to lay claim to that, 
to being untouchable. But here he is pouring himself out for this woman so that she might come and drink. Grace poured out in the most unlikely of places to a whore in the middle of town in the middle of the day. That's it. That's the picture that's being painted for us. So, I mean, the gospel should surprise us. It should surprise us. Or at the very least, it should offend you. At the least. Because it turns our definitions upside down. It tells us that the go-getters, the ones that go and get it, the ones who make it happen, the movers, the shakers, it tells us that those are the ones that end up being the most blinded by their own goodness. And it also tells us at the same time that the most bankrupt among us are the ones who are so radically transformed by grace. How is that? How in the world is that? Well, first, it's because living water knows no boundaries. It completely tears down the walls that you have put up in life. But more importantly that, as we see as this interaction goes on, as Jesus begins talking with this woman and leading her where he wants to lead her, we see that living water exposes our longing. That's the second point. Living water exposes our longing. It's, it's really fascinating if you trace, you trace the back and forth here. He's pursuing her. He never gives up, but he never says, shut up and listen. He's gentle. She evades the real meaning of his questions time and again, but he just keeps pursuing. He keeps pursuing until when? Until she ne- sees her need. Jesus jumps right at it when he asks her. He finally just cuts to the chase. He says, go get your husband and we'll keep talking. And it's almost, it seems like he's being, that's kind of ruthless, right? But he's actually being merciful. How is he being merciful there? Because he's leading her through the desert she's been wandering through all her life so she can see the living water that he is leading her to. So she can see the life that is being offered to her. You remember uh, last week at the end of uh, John chapter 2, John gives us this little aside that Jesus wasn't entrusting himself fully to some people because he knew what was in man, right? What he shows us tonight is this truth, that our lives, this woman's life, is defined by a spiritual dehydration, that we're ever drinking, never full. But not only never full, but we are empty. This woman wasn't looking for Jesus, but she was looking for something. She'd been looking all her life, and Jesus knew that. And, you know, you may not be seeking God. You may not think of yourself as someone who's seeking God, but I can guarantee you, and you have to agree with me, you're seeking peace. You're seeking security. Seeking love, approval, fulfillment in something. It's because you were made for it. You were made to have those things. Uh, C.S. Lewis kind of touches on this in Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There's all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. And I'm not just speaking of ordinary things. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we have grasped at. 
in that first moment of longing, which just fades away into reality. C.S. Lewis is getting at something inherent in all, in all of us, that we are always reaching, always grasping, but it always seems to only be at the tip of our fingers. And just when we think we have it, it goes up like a puff of smoke. It's what the whole book of Ecclesiastes is, is about, actually. So when Jesus tells her to go find her husband, he's exposing, he's laying bare her emptiness, her dryness, her life was going from man to man, hoping after each one that she would finally find satisfaction, and she never found it, but only left with a haunting thirst because none of them could hold water. None of them could hold the weight of the neediness of her soul. I found this fascinating. I forget how I ran across this, but Tom Brady was on 60 Minutes one time, the wildly successful Pro Bowl, Hall of, soon to be Hall of Famer one day, quarterback of the New England Patriots. Sitting in this interview, this is like, he's been on the cover of GQ like 15 times. The guy's got everything going for him. He's like the best quarterback ever, and he's like one of the best looking men I've ever seen. Yes, I said that. Um, he's got a gorgeous wife who's a supermodel. He's got a beautiful kid. I mean, come on. Um, but he's sitting there with the interviewer, and he says this. Uh, I got it on my phone. I'm going to read it. So I don't want to get it wrong. He says, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? Maybe a lot of people would say, this is what it is, that I've reached my goal, my dream, my life. But for me, I think it's got to be more than this. And the interviewer looked him back. I remember this so vividly. He looked him back straight in the eye and just said, what's the answer? And all he could say was, I wish I knew. How sad is that? There's that great, um, sorry for all the sports analogies, but there's that great, that great um, uh, ESPN 30 for 30 called Jordan Rides the Bench. Michael Jordan, the absolute greatest basketball player that has ever been, no one will ever come close to being Michael Jordan. I'm sorry, LeBron, Kobe, whoever you think you are. But at some point, he just got bored. He was the best that had ever been. No one could touch him. And he had to go to the minor leagues of baseball, and he was terrible to try to get that feeling of satisfaction again. He ended up back in basketball, by the way. He didn't find it. What is that? When Jeremiah chapter 2, God actually talks about this and his people as they're about to be sent into exile in Babylon. He says this, it says, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. We've exchanged the truth for a lie. It's what Romans 1 is all about. This is all of our problem, y'all, that we are ever filling and filling, but so often we find ourselves, you know you're in this cycle, where you find yourself at times and there's only one word that can describe how you feel. Empty. And you don't know what it is. I don't know if y'all have ever seen the first, the first Rocky movie, not the one that came out like a few years ago, but way back when, the very first Rocky movie, it was actually a good movie. I think it won, did it win Best Picture? I think it won the Oscar for Best Picture. It was a good movie. 
Rocky Balboa is just this kind of no-nothing guy who fights on the weekends because it's fun and he gets beat up and stuff. And he gets this chance to, to box the heavyweight champion of the world. And it's kind of just a publicity event. But as the, as, his, as the fight draws nearer, he talks to his girlfriend and she's just like, why do you have to do this? And this is what he says. He says, I just want to go the distance. No one has ever gone the distance with Apollo Creed. I just want to go the difference, so the distance so that I can know for the first time in my life that I'm not a bum. What happened after that? We got five more Rocky movies where there's always somebody else that he had to fight, right? He didn't find it. For how many of you, for the first, I want to know for the first time in my life that I'm not a bum. For how many of you is that true? At the end of your week, what do you find yourself grading your week by? Has your week hinged on whether you got the right compliments, the right satisfaction in something you've accomplished, recognized for some goal that you met, the right praise, the right approval? But you ask yourself in those times that you did get them, did they ever really last? No. Because you found yourself on Monday desperate for it to happen all over again. Because it faded away. Jesus here with the woman and through the woman to us is asking, when are you going to see that your jar is empty? Why do you keep jumping from thing after thing after thing when I'm leading you to everlasting water? Jesus is saying, this is great, that our soul needs something more from him than our body needs water itself. And if you go to any other source, it's only going to get worse. How in the world does this happen for us? How does it happen in our lives? This is the last thing here. The living water swallows our thirst. Finally, Jesus just kind of comes out right out and says it to her. Look, girl, I'm it. And you look at, um, you look at verse 26. It says, I, I, uh, I'm speaking to you, am he. The literal translation there in the Greek is, I who am speaking to you, I am. That's it. The same exact words that God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. I who am speaking, I am. I want you to see the beauty of the progression here. He's entertained all our questions. She's trying to avoid what he's exposing. And finally, he just says, I am. And she's completely changed. She's completely transformed. And what does she do but run straight back into the middle of the source of all her scorn and shame? Other people. She runs straight into them and says, you got to come see this guy because he told me everything that I ever did. How in the world does this woman make a flip to wanting everyone to know about a person that knew everything about her? How does that happen? She found something in Jesus that was incredibly freeing, incredibly joyful. Something freeing and joyful in a man who knew all of it. What was probably years of shame, years of brokenness, years of abuse. Women were low-class, second-class citizens back then. There's no telling the things that she had endured. And this is the first man to know all of it and to draw even closer, to care for her, 
to pursue her and to promise her life, and it changed her completely. How does that happen? It's two things. First, well, they're both in John 19. And John is the only one that records both of these things. In John 19, John records something that we don't see in the other Gospels. It's the sixth hour, high noon on another day. Jesus is hanging on the cross in the scorching sun, enduring mockery, scorn, and shame from all that pass by. He's bleeding from his head's head, his hands, and his feet. And then darkness covers the earth, and there's complete silence except for one piercing cry, John tells us. Jesus, before his last breath, cries into the darkness, I thirst. What does that tell us? It tells us that on the cross, Jesus really did swallow our thirst. And he swallowed the thirst that we deserved. So what we feel here and now in bits and pieces of misery and loneliness when we drink from false wells, he drank fully and he drank it fully from the cup of God's wrath. On the cross, he's separated. He's on the outside. He's the reject. He is treated like the whore. Separated from his father and from his father's eternal eternal love and favor. He gets the wrath and separation that we deserve. He gets the ultimate thirst and he drinks it to the last drop. But John also records something else that Jesus says as he dies. And it's his last words. It is finished. In other words, it's done. It's over. What I came to do, I've done. And he yielded his spirit. I want you to just see why this woman can run to all these who've ever scorned her and despised her. And she exclaims with joy, a man who knows everything she ever did. Because she came to the realization when he said, I am, she knew. It's all about who he is and what he does. Not willpower, not resolve. There's something that must grab you. And it's that he thirsted for you. And you know, some of you, some of you, you've realized that Jesus, that you have not drunk of Jesus like you should, but you just can't stop. You see the stagnant, poisonous water, but you stop there. You stop there because you think that the next step resides in you. What does he say about this living water? He says that it will well up within you. You think the next step resides in you, so you despair until you see Jesus is where to go. Jesus says this water wells up. Quit looking at how well you're doing. Get out of yourself and see. Jesus is just telling her to see. I am enough. You read in verse 23. 
That the, he says the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And he's saying, woman, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. It matters what comes from within, the core of your being. To worship in spirit and truth is to worship from the core of who you are. Nothing on the outside will change the inside. The change has to come from the inside out. It must come from inside. It must well up. How the hymn, Come Ye Sinners, I think captures this so well. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. It is is finished. It's done. May we see him, may we seek him, may we say with one voice tonight, verse 15, Sir, give me this water. When you say it, when you need it, he'll give it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we would ask, we would beg, give us this water always. Would you lead us away from where we keep running? Would you well up within us the water of life? Would you lead us by still and quiet waters? Would you be our good shepherd, we pray? Father, we find ourselves weak and weary sick and sore, but we know that that's all you require of us, that we need you. We pray that you would meet that need tonight from within, that we would be changed without. We pray all these things in your matchless name. Amen.